that would happen, but anyway. All right. Um, Psalm 52. We read it as a responsive reading. I'm going to read it again because uh, I want to get the whole flow of it. And then we're going to uh, hear the message from it. And then we're going to sing it uh, at the end. So Psalm 52 is at the heart of what we are doing today. The responsive reading just happened to land on today, which I thought was a divine coincidence. So uh, here we are, Psalm 52. If you're able to stand uh, for the reading of God's holy word, please join me as I read. It is entitled to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. God adds his blessings to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. So last week, we took a look at 1 Samuel chapter 22, where we have the account of the murder of the priests of the city of Nob that came about because Doeg, the Edomite, who had been present in the tabernacle when David went there to see Ahimelech and ask Ahimelech to consult the Lord for him, and he acquired food there as well as Goliath's sword. Doeg had been lurking there in the shadows, as it were, and David had noticed him, as we read in the account last week, uh, had uh, the little hair stand up on the back of his neck kind of feeling about Doeg. He said he knew he was up to no good when he was there. And now we saw how at the opportune moment Doeg revealed to Saul of that incident. And of course Saul then called the priests of Nob to come. All of them, Ahimelech and all his family, all came um, just at the call of their sovereign and they came and were murdered by his command, Doeg being the, the uh, executioner. And then Doeg carried on to go to the city of Nob itself and proceed to commit genocide and wipe that community out. A horrible, horrible event that David felt responsible for, and we looked at that uh, last time. Now, how do you recover from that kind of betrayal? How do you recover from that kind of, of wickedness and hatred that Doeg and Saul exhibited? I think for many of us, if we were in that situation, we would find it difficult, indeed, to have even a, 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 any kind of measure of peace after that. You know, this world is filled with all kinds of atrocities, isn't it? It was just last Monday that we remembered the horrible events of September 11th. And without getting into all of the various uh, 
theories about what happened and how, how much the government knew and was complicit in it and all of that. Nonetheless, um, to say that uh, we as a nation felt uh, betrayed and uh, unjustly uh, attacked is uh, obviously the understatement of the year. During that time, you may remember, there was a lot of prayer going on. and All of a sudden, people there for a while decided that going to church was a good thing. Uh, they weren't too concerned about what church it was necessarily, so we won't go into all of that. But just the fact that they saw at that time that trying to deal with that atrocity was far beyond the capabilities of most individuals to even begin to think about. How do I put this in perspective? How do I, how do I take events like that and fit it into my worldview that says God is sovereign, God is in control, and yet this happens that is so far beyond what I think should happen, what I think should be. that I have trouble reconciling my sense of justice and who God is. There for a while, many sought refuge in the church. But I think we've seen since then, it's very clear that for most, it was a temporary band-aid at best. And our nation today is farther from the Lord than perhaps it ever has been. And much of that comes about because people look at the wickedness that is in the world, regardless of what, you know, whether they're, what their religion is. They look at what is going on in the world and wonder, how can this be? Clearly the answer is not that there's a sovereign God. can't be, because this obviously is not going the way that I think it should go. Regardless of whatever your moral code is. So how did David deal with this? And when you faced betrayal, when you faced loss, when you faced uh, the oppression of those that hate God and aren't too fond of you either, how do you deal with that? How do, you, how do you put that into place with your understanding of what God says in His Word about who He is and how He functions and what He expects of you with the chaos and the hurt and the sorrow that surrounds us? Those of you that were here with us last week will remember that I asked you to ponder a question. You remember what the question was? How sovereign is God? And yes, it's a trick question. Because sovereignty is not, though, we have an interesting view of sovereignty, politically speaking. There's a lot of things in this nation that get talked about as being sovereign. The nation itself, but subgroups within that. Um, we, we talk about sovereignty within our own homes. We talk about sovereignty as, as individual churches or denominations. We talk about uh, corporations or organizations that have a measure of sovereignty within themselves because they govern themselves to one extent or another. Indian tribes are said to be sovereign because they're, they're set apart with their own government. But honestly, human speaking, none of them are sovereign. We use the term loosely, and unfortunately we think, when we think of God and we hear that term, we tend to transfer our understanding of human sovereignty to Him. 
The reason that no human entity is ultimately sovereign is because ultimately as we live together as a society, society, we must be accountable to one another and answer to one another to one degree or another. We depend upon one another. Whether it's infrastructure or roads or law enforcement or fire service or food supplies, you name it, all of that, we are mutually interdependent and to that degree we are not sovereign. God, on the other hand, does not depend upon anything or anyone else but himself. He's not answerable to anyone but himself. He doesn't ask our opinion of what we think he ought to do when he prepares to do it. When he prepared his plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world, He did not, as it's often mischaracterized, look down the corridors of time and see who would, would love him and therefore choose them. If he did so, he would not be sovereign because he would have subjected himself to the creature to determine his actions. How sovereign is God? Sovereignty... Dictionary, as far as the dictionary definition is concerned, it, you're either sovereign or you're not. There's no, no partial sovereignty. Partial sovereignty is really not sovereignty. God is absolutely complete in and of himself and is therefore sovereign. Now, why is that important for this discussion? What role does that understanding of God's sovereignty have in David's mind as he deals with this atrocity for which he feels a measure of responsibility? David's not even king yet. Saul is the sovereign. Saul ultimately is the one who is responsible for the deaths of the priests of Nob and their families. But David, because of his interaction with Doeg, whatever it was there in Nob, if nothing else, his observance there and I mean, there was nothing for him to do at that point. Doeg wasn't being an aggressor at that point. He was just lurking over there in the shadows, apparently, checking things out. David couldn't very well go over and lop his head off for that. But David looked at that situation and felt responsible, even though he knew as we will see here in Psalm 52, that God is sovereign. And ultimately, his response when Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, shows up and tells David what happened, his response is remarkably calm. And when you read this Psalm 52, it is, I've gone over this uh, and over this, and every time I read through this, I just marvel at David's frame of mind. I know when I've gone through times when, yes, there have been times when I've been unjustly criticized, condemned even. Sometimes justly so. But those are easier to deal with than when it's unjust. Or at least when I think it's unjust. And I can spend a lot of time fretting over this, that, and the other. Any of you, when you're involved in a conflict with somebody, 
spend a good deal of your waking hours mulling over in your mind all the incredible conversations you're going to have with that person to straighten them out and justify yourself. Yeah. Now this psalm, we, I don't see, David may have had moments like that. You know, what am I going to do when I come across Doeg? I think it's really interesting. And you can go check this out for yourself. There is no place in the Old Testament or New Testament where Doeg's fate is described. I desperately want that. I really want Doeg to get what's coming to him. But it's not recorded anywhere. I would love to find a passage where it says that, uh, that Doeg was slain on the battlefield. You know, Saul, he was slain on the battlefield, had his head cut off. They hung his body on the, hung his body on the, on the wall. But Doeg... There's nothing like that. And I feel cheated somehow. That he didn't get his just desserts. When you read through Psalm 52, David's very clear that he expects Doeg to get his just desserts. <clears throat> but I think it's very interesting that nowhere do we find... David taking matters into his own hands to go do that. David's whole confidence here in the midst of this is one that is resting in the Lord himself. And that the Lord, in his sovereignty, will deal with the betrayer, deal with the wicked in his way, in his time. And he notes that the righteous will rejoice when they see the Lord, Lord's justice happen. But in the meantime, uh, he said, as he says in verse 8, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. This is where I really kind of grab the, the thesis of his last couple of messages, that you and I can indeed flourish in spite of the worst that the wicked can pour out against us. And that flourishing begins by recognizing that we are under the umbrella, if you will, of God's faithful, absolute covenant loyalty. Verses 1 and 8, you see that phrase, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. And in verse 8, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Our confidence in God's sovereignty, our resting in, in His hands in the middle of the worst that anyone can dish out against us, begins in the very character of God. Unlike your betrayer, unlike the oppressor, unlike the one who is persecuting you, God is eternal. And so is His faithfulness. His faithfulness to His own promises. His faithfulness to His very character. And ultimately, His faithfulness to the good of His people. Even though we can look at the slaughter of the priests of Nob and their families and say, how is that to their good? And the answer is, I don't know. If nothing else, because they were faithful servants of the Most High God, absent from the body, present with the Lord, I'd say that's pretty good for them. But ultimately, God's plan is not just about what satisfies us individually. He's working for the reclamation of His people. 
from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. Gathering to Himself the Holy Bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in His sovereign plan, in the midst of a fallen world where sin is rampant, there will be sorrow because of the wickedness of men. There will be terror. There will be death. There will be suffering. But God uses those things to draw even more to Himself as He secures the souls of His own to Himself. David knows, as I trust you do as well, that he can absolutely trust that God will never fail his people, ultimately. And by fail, I don't mean that everything's going to be a bed of roses for them. But I mean that for the good of their souls eternally, he can rest in a God whose plan that he cannot and neither can we begin to understand. Because he's God and uh, we're not. Secondly, in that context of resting in the fact that God sovereignly knows all, is working to accomplish all that He plans, and is doing it well, then when we're faced with the betrayer, we can still flourish. Because this betrayer, as we see in verses 2 and 7, is mighty. We've already looked at 1 Samuel 22 and seen what has happened, this horrible, horrible situation. And David summarizes the actions of Doeg, and really Saul is involved here as well. There's no sugarcoating of this, though it's, it is, I find it interesting um, that though David points out how wicked the betrayer is, he doesn't specifically mention the murder of the priests or even something that suggests it. There may be a timeline thing here, you know, between when he got the report and when he wrote this and what all he knew. It, it's but it would seem, though if you read it, at least on face value, it would seem that he got the full report of what happened only when Abiathar came. So I'm going to presume that he wrote this after he got the report. I don't know. If I had been writing this psalm, speaking of writing psalms for a sermon, <coughs> If I had been writing this psalm, I, I uh, might have been more pointed in my accusation against the betrayer, more vivid in my explanation of why that individual was so heinous in his thinking and actions. David doesn't whitewash anything, but he doesn't go into the details which I find rather remarkable. I don't have an answer for that, why he, why he did that, really. But even with that, his picture of the, the one who is the betrayer calls him a mighty man. I don't think he's being sarcastic. Within a certain context, you had to think that Doeg, to do what he did, had to had to have some strength, had to have some muscle, had to have a certain sense of courage. However misplaced, I'm not praising him. And I think David is noting that the enemy is mighty. Now there is might, uh, though, that uh, is shown up in different ways. In this case, he's mighty, and Doeg was certainly mighty in his arrogance. As far as David was concerned, why do you boast of evil, O oh mighty man? 
You know, those that oppress us and persecute us, they're often rather smug, infuriatingly so, in their attitude towards us. Condescending, feeling impregnable, untouchable. But that is ill-advised. And David is, in these words, this is a word of warning to those who are tempted to be betrayers and oppressors of God's people. Whether that's in the larger scheme of society or within the, the little micro uh, subgroups of our society of human organizations, our families, whatever. This is a warning. Why do you boast of this? You need to remember that the steadfast love of God, His sovereign covenant loyalty endures forever, and you don't. Don't be so arrogant. Nonetheless, the wicked often are. And in their arrogance, they're also mighty in their scheming. Your Your tongue plots destruction. The idea of carefully calculating. We noted this last time that Doeg was a schemer. He waited. He had this piece of information about David going to Ahimelech for quite a while. And he waited until the right moment when it would have maximum impact against David and against the priests. Some people uh, don't have the patience for this. They can't wait to spill the beans. They can't wait to advance themselves. Doeg was patient enough to wait for the moment when he would get maximum advancement, maximum advantage out of his information. And mighty in harming others. Yes, as we noted last time, betrayal hurts. It hurts. So David describes him as a sharp razor. It cuts deep when we're betrayed. It cuts deep when people break their promises. It cuts deep when people strive to hurt us. And boy, he's mighty in uh, something else too. He's mighty in deceit or lying. You love evil more uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. Um, uh, he's a worker of deceit. He loves lying more than speaking what is right. Uh, as we look at verses 2 and 3. Again, Doeg's deceit was there because he didn't... Actually, what he said was true enough. The problem was what he left out that would have changed the whole story and made it very clear that what Saul was thinking about David was utterly incorrect. And so therefore would take away all justification for Saul to make the commands that he did. If Saul didn't even have justification to do what he did, even if they were true. But Doeg was a liar. And usually when we are being oppressed or when we are being betrayed, there is usually deceit mixed into the mix. Using the word twice in the same sentence. Anyway... There's usually deceit in there somewhere. Not telling the whole story, telling selective parts in order to move a conversation a certain way, uh, conveniently forgetting things that uh, would undermine your position, and so on. And all of that, of course, does add more to the hurt. And Doeg, it says here... It says you love evil more than good. The, the syntax here, the grammar would imply that this speaker of deceit, this mighty man, was mighty in evil. It suggests that he doesn't love good at all. John Gill comments on this verse that essentially... Uh, The carnal mind is at war with all that is good. 
When we are betrayed, at least at that moment, in the time of betrayal, evil is loved more than good by the betrayer. The carnal mind is in full swing. And in that loving of evil and the willingness to lie, the willingness to hurt, the willingness to plot destruction, it comes out in their mouth. You love all words that devour. It's verse 4. Oh, deceitful tongue. That word devour means uh, to consume or swallow up. Literally, you love words that swallow up. Commentators Kyle and Delich in their commentary on this verse talked about swallowing up life, honor, goods. Some of you are maybe perhaps Shakespeare fans. In the Merchant of Venice, you remember what Shylock wants from Petruchio? From the merchant. What does Shylock want? Anybody remember? He wants a pound of flesh. Where we get that phrase. He wants an actual pound. He wants the knife to go in. He wants to cut out a pound, and preferably the heart is what he's after, of Petruchio's flesh. He wants him dead. He wants to consume all that he is. And of course, Shakespeare rightly portrays Shylock as a wicked man devoid of all heart and sentimentality. Care for others, only seeking his own, trusting in his own wealth and power and position. A mighty adversary, but he loves to swallow up those that betray us to one degree or another often strive to essentially wipe us out. Remove from us any ability to function, have any influence, or carry on. So the betrayer is mighty. So far, we're not much more encouraged than we were at the end of last week. Except we did talk about God's covenant loyalty, which I hope has, has upheld you through this little uh, summary of the wickedness of the betrayer. But now we start to see a little more in the way of encouragement. In verses 5 through 7, we, under, we begin to understand that as mighty as the betrayer is, Yahweh is mightier. He is greater than any thing that, that man can dish out or anything that man can be. And so in verse 5 as well as in verse 7, he is mightier to demolish the betrayer's strength. God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent, uprooting you from the land of the living. The betrayer is willing to trust in his own riches, verse 7. Finds his strength there, but God is mightier so that he can and will destroy all that upholds him. You know, again, we don't see in the Scriptures where Doeg is ever punished. But David's mindset, and that's what we're trying to get at here, a mindset that we should be emulating, his mindset is that it's already done. It's already accomplished. He is absolutely confident in God's covenant loyalty to uphold himself, uphold his people in accordance with his promises to his people. And that he will put down the wicked. And David is at peace in that recognition that God will act in his good time. Not only to demolish the betrayer's strength, but even to shred the very refuge that the betrayer is, is hiding in. And the, he's going to snatch and tear you from your tent, your place of refuge. Wouldn't, you won't make God your refuge, verse 7. You sought refuge 
in your own destruction. We'll talk about that just a little bit more when we look at verse 7. But where the refuge, where the betrayer goes to hide and find, he, he finds safety in his own arrogance, in his own position, in his, in his plans, and all that stuff. David says, God's going to just rip you out of there. Your tent's going to be in tatters. Because God is mightier. Even to the point of removing him from the land of the living, if that's his will. God is mightier to take his life. This one who wants to swallow up the life of the righteous, his life is in God's hands. And David is resting in this. Again, how can David be so calm? Because he's resting in God's absolute loyalty and sovereignty over all things. And then verse 7. Let's unpack this just a little bit more. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. That word destruction has the idea of, of really summarizing all of his plans, all the things that he thought was going to work is actually going to work against him. We, we might, we've all heard that phrase, getting caught in a lie, that kind of thing. And to our undoing, it's the same idea that David is referring to here. Destruction is the end of the road for the arrogant enemy who trusts in his own resources and plans. His deceit and scheming, which he thought would destroy you, which is verse 2, it will actually destroy him. Solomon says in Proverbs 14, 12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Doig and Saul were on that path. The judgment of God would come upon them in due course. Now some of us, perhaps all of us, but I'll just say some, we'd often like God to work a little faster in His revenge, wouldn't we? There's an old saying, it's not a scriptural one, but I think it, it captures a scriptural principle that the wheels of God grind slowly, but they grind exceeding small. God in His good time will vindicate not only His name, but the name and honor of His people. And even though His people may, by His sovereign appointment, must go through a time of trial, difficulty, even death, humanly speaking, for a time, the wicked will not succeed. And ultimately, they will meet the end that he has ordained in his good time. So in spite of the betrayer, you can flourish under that umbrella of God's covenant loyalty and recognizing that even though the betrayer the persecutor, the oppressor is mighty. God is mightier still. But I love what, how this psalm ends. This is not just a, 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 a David's confidence in God's sword. This isn't just a battle song. This is a song of utter devotion. And it ends this way in verses 8 and 9. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. The contrast of that statement. I hope you're catching the enormity of the contrast with that statement, with what has already preceded. It wasn't that all of that David has said before was not said in faith and in confidence in God. It absolutely is. But... It's, it's, it's describing a conflict. 
And you get to verse 8, and it's the conflict's over. I'm like a green olive tree. I'm flourishing in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever. I will thank you forever because you've done it. I will wait for your name. This takes on a whole different area of God's character and actions. In the first part of the psalm, it's yes, it's God's loyalty, it's his justice, it's his vengeance, it's his judgment. In this part, it's his presence. It's who he is as we rest in him. I thought, and perhaps you did too, as uh, read verse 8 of David's words in Psalm 1, where he describes that the righteous, is, uh, the righteous man is like one who is planted by the rivers of water. It brings forth its fruit in, in due season, whose weaf, uh, leaf will not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. Again, how David can take that thought after hearing their report is something that only the Lord can do as he enables you to rest in who he is. David focuses on four things here. He's flourishing in God's very presence in the house of God where God's people gather, he's absolutely expressing trust in the promises and character of God. This is an eternal confidence. As he says, I, I will trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. In verse 6, which we jumped over a little bit, after God works to judge the wicked. It says the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at the wicked one. Uh, and, and, and then going on to say, this is what happens when you don't trust in the Lord as your refuge. But we see there in verse 6, what are the righteous boasting in? <clears throat> we started off talking about the, the boasting of the wicked man. But it's appropriate for the righteous to boast as well. Just not in ourselves. We will boast in Yahweh our God, revering Him all the more, seeing what He does, we shall also fear, revering Him all the more as we witness His vengeance upon His and our enemies. As the Lord proclaimed through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9, Thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares Yahweh. We may and must boast in our sovereign God because we're trusting in His promises and His very character and being. But along with that character and, and being, He is working as well. And so, another aspect of Flourishing, how David is managing to flourish even in the midst of this atrocity, is that his heart is stirred up by and consumed by gratitude for God's acts, for God's works. Truly, to say, I will thank you forever because you've done it, is a remarkable statement in light of the betrayal and atrocities that have taken place. But then again, it begs the question, does it not? Can you truly give thanks to Yahweh in all things? 
in all things? How sovereign is he? Can you be thankful for that sovereignty in all things? David was, and thus he could say he was like a flourishing tree. David is also flourishing in the presence of God because he is coming to God not only with gratitude, but with expectation. He's expecting God's goodness to be poured out. I will wait for your name. For it is good. We go through this life with all of its difficulties and it can be very easy to, to get to the point that we have the mindset that what we're expecting is to be smacked upside the head again. That we're expecting God's displeasure. That we're expecting um, you know, the next bad thing to hit. <laughs> Some of you have been through it lately. Looking around the room. And in your heart and mind, you're going, what's next, Lord? Really? Really? Okay, I have to say it. So Greg has his challenge with, uh, first of all, the stroke. That was pretty serious. Okay, just starting to pull out of that. Wham! Shingles! Lord! And yet in the midst of that, and it's one of, one of the reasons why it's so fun to go visit him, uh, is because by God's grace, I'm not trying to pat you on the back, brother. This, this is a gift of God. But by God's grace, uh, he's just expecting God to be good. He's expecting God to sustain him. He's just expecting that, okay, whatever. Yeah, this isn't fun, but all right, here we go. Um, I know the Lord's in it. Done, and there's still joy and cheer in that in those visits every time. I don't know who's more encouraged after our visits, him or me. I think it's me. David lives in expectation that God is good. John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, explained it this way. Patiently expecting His mercy even when there is the least appearance of it being granted. Is that the way you approach life with the Lord, even in the midst of trials? Pray God that He grant you the grace to live in that kind of expectation. His name, which is a summation of His whole character, is good. And He will not fail. And then finally, where do we find this presence of God? just kind of out there in the ether somewhere? Is it just a warm, fuzzy feeling that we get? Well, there is the ministry of the Holy Spirit who testifies to our spirit that we are His and that comfort that is ours within our hearts and minds as we consider what He has said about Himself and His Word and observe His actions and all of that and know that He is true and that He's God, that He's living, and He's good. But notice a theme that really um, uh, captures what's going on here in the situation that David finds himself in is summed up in that last phrase. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. David, of course, is surrounded by 400 men or more and their families as they're hiding there in the caves. So he's describing the fellowship that is around him. Beloved, it is among the saints that God's presence, mercy, and faithfulness is most clearly seen and affirmed. 
You want to know and experience the presence of God and see Him at work to the maximum? Don't pretend that you can hide in your house or go out in the woods somewhere all on your own and somehow experience all that God is. You can't. He didn't design it that way. It's among the saints. It's in the presence of the godly. Because His work in their lives multiplies and magnifies our perception of who He is as we see and look beyond ourselves to see how God has ministered to others. And we find joy and encouragement there that we can't begin to understand if we're only on our own. And we get an inkling of it. I don't mean that what is on our own is not genuine or good or desirable. I mean, there is a place for that, you know, finding your, your prayer closet and coming apart for a, a, a time unto the Lord. But those are occasional times that should prepare us then to come into God's presence with His people and therefore magnify Him and glorify Him even more. So David is able to flourish in God's presence because God is present with His people. So gather with the saints of God and you will tend to flourish. If you don't, you won't. Now, as we close here, I wouldn't have you to think that you should go around eagerly looking for the downfall of people that were working against you. And I don't think really that that's what David is saying here either. This psalm is a warning to those who sin against God and His servants. What David is boasting in here is the power and name of God. He's boasting in the one who will not be rebelled against indefinitely. So betrayers, beware. David's eagerness and yours must be in the vindication of God's name as it is manifested among His people. And when that's your desire, as you rest in Him and His absolute sovereignty, you can flourish even through the worst attacks of the wicked. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that you are sovereign. And that none can stay your hand, undo your plans, thwart your pro the progress of your redemption and deliverance and gathering of your people. We thank you, Father, that you will be honored in this world, one way or the other. Lord, let us never be on the side of those that oppress your people. But Lord, let us find our refuge in you and be content because in you, by the grace that is given to us through the Lord Jesus, we shall indeed flourish. In Christ's name I pray.